Well, good morning and welcome to Hawaii Kai Church. It's so good to see all of you here this morning to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. We do want to thank God for um, our growing music ministry, to have Abby and Matthew up here singing and playing the guitar. Uh, Joining Ivan was such a blessing this morning. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 38. We're going to continue our study uh, through this Gospel, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 4. Uh, verses 38 through 44, which can be found on page 860 in the Bibles under your seats. Uh, That's going to be our passage of study this morning. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 38. And we're going to read that together now. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 38, says this. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them. And would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Before we begin, would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we do thank you again for this morning, and we thank you, Lord, and we praise you that you are indeed worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise, and God, even this morning as we begin now to look into your word, would you help us? Would you turn our gaze upwards once again, that we might gaze upon your beauty, that we might see you for who you truly are, that you reign from heaven as king. And I pray, God, that as you would open up your word to us, as your spirit would continue to move in us, please help us, Lord, to understand, to take to heart, and to be changed by the word of God. We look to you for this, Lord, and we pray that you would help us. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our passage today, Jesus continues to display his power as the Messiah through miraculous healings of illnesses and deliverance from demons. However, as we will see today, his primary purpose is not simply to be a miracle worker who relieves people of their physical illnesses and earthly ailments and woes, but his primary purpose is to preach, to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to proclaim a message of repentance and redemption through the forgiveness of sins so that he might create for himself a kingdom for his people. Our passage this morning is a continuation of the events that we learned about last week in Luke 4, uh, 31 through 37, in which Jesus, after having announced his messiahship, that he was the long-awaited messiah, he was rejected and almost murdered by the people of his hometown in Nazareth. But this didn't stop him. He continued to faithfully preach the gospel in the neighboring town of Capernaum. 
And it was here in the synagogue during the Sabbath service as Jesus was teaching that a demon-possessed man screamed out in terror, in anguish and confusion. And as we learned last week, Jesus displayed his power over the spiritual realm by exercising the demon from this man with just a word. Be silent and come out of him. And the demon was forced to leave. And all the people were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And this is where we begin our study this morning. This is a continuation of that same day. Look again at verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now having just encountered a demon during the Sunday Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath day's morning service, you know, I can only imagine the sense of relief as the people left the synagogue that morning, the letting out of a collective breath. Whew, after that adrenaline rush of seeing the demon in their midst and being cast out by Jesus, they must have been thinking, what just happened? Oh my gosh, let's go get some lunch and then take a nap. That's what I'd be thinking. But as we're about to see, this was just the beginning of a very long and memorable day for the disciples. For no sooner does Jesus leave the synagogue when he enters Peter and Andrew's home and they appeal to him on the behalf of Peter's mother-in-law who is ill with a high fever. Now Luke, if you remember, is a physician and he describes this high fever using the Greek word megas, meaning she had a mega fever. She was very, very ill. This was no ordinary cold or sickness. In fact, it was so bad that they believed that she needed divine intervention. And so Peter and the others with him, knowing what Jesus could do, appealed to, him, uh, appealed to Jesus on her behalf. Basically, they were asking for a miracle. And in response to their pleas, Jesus rebukes the fever. And just like the demon in the synagogue, it is gone. Now, please understand, this was no partial healing that required a slow recuperation. With just a word, Jesus instantaneously and completely heals this poor woman's mega fever. And we know it was instantaneous and we know it was complete because Luke makes it very clear that the fever left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, Luke, like any other doctor, was accustomed to seeing deathly ill people. And I'm going to assume that without the benefits of the modern medicine that we have today, many of those deathly ill people actually died. So how amazing it must have been for this first century doctor to hear about Jesus' power to heal. Dr. Luke, more than most, would have known that this was a miracle. And so Luke makes it very clear that with just a word, Jesus is able to completely rebuke and reverse the physical effects of sin, which manifests itself in the diseased, broken, and dying bodies of humanity. And thus begins the miraculous healings that we're going to see again and again throughout Luke's gospel, starting with the very next verses of our passage today. Look at verse 40. 
Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now obviously, word must have spread throughout all Capernaum that Jesus had cast out a demon during the synagogue service that morning. And I would assume that others must have told everyone in the town throughout the afternoon about him healing Peter's mother-in-law. So that by evening, at sundown, when the Sabbath was over, people were now able to carry their weak and sick and bedridden relatives and friends, for they were not allowed to do this during the Sabbath. And so at sundown, they begin to flock to Peter's house, hoping that Jesus will heal. And Luke tells us that Jesus laid his hands on them and healed every one of them. Now, when we hear things like this in the Bible, we might start to wonder, well, if Jesus has the power and authority to heal, then why didn't he heal my grandmother when she was sick? I prayed and I asked him, why doesn't Jesus always heal? Well, there's something very important for us to understand about the healing power of Christ. We need to always remember the purpose behind these miraculous healings. They were first and foremost a sign. They were a sign pointing to the fact that Jesus had authority and power not just to heal physical illnesses, but more importantly, he had the power and authority to forgive sins and that he alone was Lord and Savior of his people. Now, we're going to learn more about this when we get to chapter 5 in a few weeks. But let me just give you a little preview. When Jesus heals the paralytic in chapter 5, he says this to the Pharisees. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Jesus' healing of the paralytic in chapter 5 was meant to show the doubting Pharisees that he indeed had the authority on earth to forgive sins. And so the healing of our physical ailments, just for the sake of healing, is not the main reason Jesus came to earth, and it shouldn't be why we come to Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die on a cross. He came to die so that our sins could be forgiven, so that Jesus could make for himself a people for his own possession. We are saved by him, and we exist for him. He doesn't exist to serve us. He is our king, and we are his people. And we must understand this so that we don't get confused about why we come to Christ, and we don't confuse others when we share our faith with them. Jesus is not our Savior simply to make our lives better while we're here on earth. And we should be careful not to give that impression to other people when we're witnessing to them. We do not come to Jesus to take away physical pain and suffering or to keep us physically healthy. We don't tell people to trust in Jesus so that their physical ailments can be healed. 
Just like we don't come to Jesus to solve all of our financial problems or to solve our marital and family struggles or to help us find a better job or to find the perfect spouse. If that's why you are seeking Jesus today, or if that's what we're telling people as we share our faith with them, then mark my words, there's going to be huge disappointment in Christ. Because Jesus will not be your lucky charm, your rabbit's foot, nor is he some kind of mysterious force that is moved into action for your benefit whenever we pray in Jesus' name. He is not going to be the genie in the bottle to, to be at your beck and call whenever you rub his lamp. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is king he is sovereign over all, and he will do what he knows is best for you and me. And so, yes, Jesus has the power and authority to heal all physical ailments, but it will be done in accordance to his will and not ours. He is king, and whether he heals us or not, we trust in him. So not only does Christ have power and authority to heal all physical ailments, but as we've already learned last week from Pastor Dan, Jesus also has complete power and authority over the demonic. Look again at verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. You know, as people were bringing their afflicted friends and relatives to Jesus, it became quickly apparent that not all were suffering from physical ailments. Some were, in fact, filled with, controlled, and overpowered by demonic forces. Now, as we learned last week, if we have Christ, we have nothing to fear from the spiritual forces of darkness. If we are found in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear because he has all authority and power even over the demonic realm. Jesus, with his word, rebukes the demons and they must obey. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting, as we saw last week as well, that unlike the humans in Nazareth and Capernaum, it is the demonic spirits that know who and believe in Jesus Christ. They recognize, they understand, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that he is the Holy One of God. And they know that he has the power to destroy them. The demons know and believe in Jesus. They fear Jesus and they obey Jesus. But the demons are not saved. There is no salvation or redemption in their belief. Theirs is simply an intellectual belief, a forced obedience arising from the knowledge that they must obey or else. Their belief is devoid of any devotion or love, lacking all desire or will to bow their knee before the King of Kings. And what we learn from this demonic belief in Jesus Christ should come as a sobering warning intellectual understanding of who Jesus is will not save you. 
belief that Jesus Christ is the Holy Son of God will not save you. Even obedience to the Word of God, if not coupled with a heart that loves Jesus, will not save you. As Alexander McLaren says, the confession which is unto salvation comes from a heart that loves, not merely from a head that perceives. And Jesus accepts nothing else. There are those, perhaps even some, who are listening to this sermon today who have an intellectual understanding and belief in Jesus Christ, but who have never repented of their sins and cried out to the King for mercy and forgiveness. These are the ones who have never recognized the true state of their depravity and hopelessness because of their sin. They do not know that they are dead in their trespasses and sins and that their only hope is Jesus, the Messiah. They are the ones who believe that for the most part they are good people. And so there's no real need, is there, to get overly religious and fanatical about Jesus. But they come to church occasionally anyway and they give some money and consent intellectually to the Savior just in case. And I've been really bad this week, so I better go to church and make amends. And so because they don't see how utterly lost and helpless they truly are, Jesus becomes an intellectual insurance policy, their get-out-of-hell-free card rather than their only hope. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. We may know the Bible intellectually, but, may have no influ- but it may have no influence over our hearts and wills and consciences. We may, in reality, be nothing better than the demons. He goes on to say, let it never content us to know religion with our heads only. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust and love him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? Does our knowledge of the fruits of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily behavior? Knowledge of this kind is truly profitable but any other religious knowledge will only add to our condemnation at the last day. And Jesus spoke of this condemnation at the last day in Matthew 7, where he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but this has to be, in my opinion, the scariest verse in all of the Bible. Notice what Jesus says. There will be many who will come to him on the last day to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. Jesus is not going to accept our lip service only. 
Even when the demons were crying out truth, you are the Son of God, Jesus rebukes and he silences them. He will not accept their lip service, not from demons and not from unrepentant sinners either. We must come to God not with empty words, but with empty hands. We can bring nothing to God that will justify us. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. Only the blood of Jesus shed for sinners like you and me will save us. As the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And so let us take heed of this sobering warning. Don't be like a demon and beware of an unsanctified intellectual head knowledge of Christianity that fails to recognize our utter helplessness to save ourselves from our sin and therefore keeps us from truly repenting of our sin and coming to our Savior Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. Let's move on. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, I can only imagine that Jesus must have been healing people probably well into the night. We are told in Mark's account of the same story that the whole city was gathered together at the door of Peter's house. Now, scholars say that Capernaum wasn't a very big town. There were about 1,500 people in the time of Jesus. I'm going to assume the phrase, the whole city, is more descriptive of a very large crowd rather than an actual headcount of everyone in the city. Still, the crowd was large, large enough so that those who remembered the event described it as the whole city being at Peter's house. Now, Luke doesn't tell us when the crowds dispersed or if or when Jesus was able to rest or get some sleep. However, Luke does tell us that when the next day arrives, Jesus retreats to a desolate place. In spite of what was probably a very long and wearisome day, there was something that Jesus knew he needed far more than sleep. He needed to spend time in prayer and renew his communion with his Father. As Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, went about the important task of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he understood where his power and strength came from. Although Jesus was 100% God, he also humbled himself to take on human flesh, and therefore he knew firsthand the tiredness and weariness of body, mind, and soul. That's why he can understand and sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what you feel. He knows your weariness. But he also knew where to find renewal and strength. 
We see him seeking out solitude to be with his father after performing miracles of healing and deliverances as we see in our passage today. Jesus also retreated to solitude in times of grief after his cousin John the Baptist was executed. He also sought his father in solitude before making the weighty decision of choosing the 12 apostles. And perhaps most famously, he sought out his father during his unimaginable distress while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. Seeking solitude to spend time with his heavenly Father was a consistent practice in the Son of God's life. Now, if the Son of God needed to spend quiet time alone and in prayer with his God, how much more do you think we need it? You know, we can get so busy with the activities of life, so caught up with the 101 things in our daily schedules that we, be, we lose sight of what is truly important and necessary. We become like Martha in Luke chapter 10. She was so busy scurrying about, getting things prepared for Jesus, that she forgot the most important thing was Jesus himself. Luke 10, starting in verse 38, says this, Now as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus was not going to tell Mary to help Martha. He was not going to take away from Mary the one thing that he knew was absolutely necessary, which was to sit quietly at the feet of the Lord and listen to his word. So brothers and sisters, we need to learn from the Lord. We need to learn from Martha and Mary. Make sure you don't become so anxious and troubled about so many things, but rather choose the good portion like Mary and make time. Make time in your schedules to spend quiet time alone with your God. You will not regret it. This, Jesus says, is the one thing that is necessary. But as much as Jesus valued and cherished his time alone with his Father, he was also keenly aware of his mission on earth. The people sought him and eventually found him. They always found him. And Luke says that they would have kept him from leaving them, but Jesus tells them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Not just in Capernaum, not just in Galilee, but also in Judea. Jesus came to the lost sheep in all of Israel. But the people in Capernaum obviously didn't want Jesus to leave. 
In Jesus, they had their own personal great healer, their own personal miracle worker. They selfishly wanted to keep him all to themselves. They did not understand, nor did they care or believe that Jesus' real purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In their minds, the Jews believed that the kingdom of God was going to be an earthly kingdom. In fact, in Luke 17, Jesus was saying, Jesus was being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them by saying, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What the Jews failed to understand was that the true kingdom of God was going to be found wherever the king was found. And he was in their very midst. Jesus was going to build his kingdom in the hearts of those who believed and trusted in him as their savior. But in spite of all the miracles and fantastic displays of his power and authority, the Jews in Capernaum did not believe. And Jesus would therefore later go on to condemn Capernaum for their unbelief. He would preach woe upon them in Luke 10 and more descriptively in Matthew 11 when he says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you remember Sodom? That city was so wicked that the angel of the Lord could not even find 10 righteous people in the entire city. Otherwise, he would have spared it. And now Jesus is saying, Capernaum, you are worse than Sodom. For although you have seen the mighty works of God, you still do not understand. You still will not believe. What the pe people of Capernaum failed to understand, what they failed to believe, was that Jesus was far more than a healer or a miracle worker. They failed to understand and believe that in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God had come into their very midst. It was a kingdom announced and proclaimed by great authority and by power as exhibited by the incredible healings and miracles and deliverances of demons. Every healing, every miracle, every demon that was cast out was another trumpet blast announcing the arrival of the king. But all the people wanted were the healings and the miracles themselves. They wanted the gifts of the kingdom, but failed to understand that a kingdom always has a king. The people of Capernaum welcomed Jesus' power and authority as their healer. They clamored for his power and authority as their miracle worker. They greatly desired his power and authority as their genie in the bottle, but they refused to accept Jesus' power and authority as their king. And so the question for all of us hearing this message this morning is this. Do you recognize the rule and reign and authority of Christ in your life? And as Pastor Dan asked us last week, does Jesus have power and authority over his church? 
Do you truly pray as Jesus taught, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or do you, like those in Capernaum, want Jesus simply for what he can do for you? Now the good news of the kingdom of God is that he has sent his son to redeem lost sinners so that he could make a people for himself. He is kingdom building and he is seeking not just followers and subjects who believe in him and obey his authority because they have to. Even the demons do this. Rather, God is seeking worshipers who love him, who recognize his authority and power over their lives and submit to his will, trusting and knowing that we have a good king. We have a great king. He may not always give us what we want. He may not always heal us, but he is good, and he will always do what he knows is best. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer this morning, then believe and trust that the kingdom of God is in your midst, and Jesus is your king. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we do again thank you for this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our king. That you are one that we can look to, to lead us, to guide us, to provide for us and protect us. And we trust, Lord, that whatever you bring into our lives is for our good. We know, Lord, that all things work together for good for those who love you and who those who are called according to your purpose. I pray, Father, that you would make this real, continue to make this real in our lives, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to remember everything, God, that you have taught to us in your word. Continue to teach us. Continue to guide us, we ask and pray. Help us, Lord, to become more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We do love you and we thank you again and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.